Amen. If you would take your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Once again, Hebrews chapter 10. You know, when a death of a friend occurs, we're reminded that death is something that we all must face. And, you know, it used to be, you know, I was sitting there thinking about it, I think, you know, the closer I get to death, and I thought, you know, that's not really true. There's really only a step between us and death. And it doesn't matter how old you are, because we know not what tomorrow may bring. You know, when I was young, I thought I had a long time to live. I just didn't realize how ignorant I was. Because, you know, life is not in my hand. It's in the hand of God who gave it. And uh, we don't know the day nor the hour that he is coming, nor the day of man's death. But uh, we're just a step. Anyway, Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 19 through 25 of Hebrews chapter 10. The Bible says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into holiness by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some it is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So the title of the message this morning is Considering One Another. Considering One Another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your love and your mercies. Thank you for the opportunity we have to open your precious word. And I pray as you look into the word of God this morning. I pray you help me as I preach. I pray that the word will go forth in the demonstration of the spirit and of power and that we'd open our hearts and minds and that you might teach us by your spirit instruct us in the truth of thy word that we might be better equipped in our service for Thee, and Lord, if there's any in our midst this morning did not have that full assurance of faith, that the Spirit of God would bring conviction, help them to see the truth, and come to the truth, that they might know their sins forgiven, and their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, as I've been studying, we've been studying through this book of Hebrews, you know, there's been a lot of things that have become more clear. You know, I don't know in all my times, years being in a church, if I've ever, ever heard any preacher preach through the book of Hebrews or preach out of the book of Hebrews. This doesn't happen very often. It's one of those books that's uh, a little bit difficult. Um, and I don't say that to say that, you know, I can preach things that are difficult. There's a lot of stuff I don't understand. But tack- tackling this more difficult book has made caused me to study more and to see things in ways that I never really saw them before uh, or much more clear. And, you know, it's, it's, it, the book really, as I'm go- we're going through it, it really just keeps...
building. It's building up to like a climax, I think, I think is what we're going to come, come to. And, and, you know, it's like a lawyer is building his case. And he wants, he wants a verdict of guilty. You know, he's going he's gonna to have a conclusion and come to the, he, 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 and, and wants us to come to the right conclusion. And, of course, I, I personally believe it was Paul. And Paul, or Peter wrote that, you know, Paul wrote some things that were hard to be understood. And I believe this is one of those books. But anyway, you know, we, we really start out here in verse 19 with a conjunction, having therefore. And that's a conjunction. So building on what's before, and what's before in chapter 10 was, we talked about how that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. They were just shadows. That was last week's. And, and, but we have the reality for the sacrifice of sin, which is Jesus Christ, who was a, the, the, you know, whom, whom God prepared, where he said, a body hast thou prepared me. He became the sacrifice for sin once for all. You know, he was the one that would come into the world and take away sin, not just cover it. And, and so he's the one that's able to sanctify them forever. And is now set down on the right hand of God, speaking of a finished work. So there's going to be no more sacrifices. If you're looking for sacrifices today, you're, you're really, and we're going to see this next week, what you're really doing is slapping God in the face. Slapping God in the face for his sacrifice for your sin. It's an insult. You're really saying that Jesus Christ's sacrifice was not sufficient. And, and so this is really the warning that he's giving to the, to the Jewish brethren, the Hebrews, I believe it's written, to the Jewish brethren there in Jerusalem. But as we, we consider this this morning, I want to notice several, three things. First of all, we have a, when we're considering one another here, as considering one another, we have a new standing. In verse 19 he says, Having therefore, brethren... Boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. You know, in previous dispensations or time periods, that's what dispensation is, you know, like the law, that was a time period in the Bible, you know, man did not have direct access to God as we have. You know, we can, we can go to God in prayer and we can fellowship with God, you know, spend time in His Word and prayer and commune with Him and, 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 and so on. But that wasn't the case, and, and, and we can go to God, we can go to God, if, if we sin, we simply go to God in prayer, and, and if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It was not how it was done under the law. If you had been under the law, the old dispensation, you'd, they'd had priests appointed, who acted as mediators between God and men. This is where the Catholics and a lot of you know, churches have this idea that then you need a priest. This is where they get their ideas from the Old Testament. That you need a mediator between, to mediate between you and God. And so in the Old Testament times, if you sin, you would take your offering or your sacrifice for your sin and you would take it to the priest. And the priest would kill it for you and offer the blood upon the the altar, the brazen altar, to atone for your sin. You couldn't just say, God, forgive me, I have, and you, you know, to confess means to agree with. Agree with God about your sin and ask him to forgive you, and you'd be cleansed. That's what you do today, but you couldn't do that in the Old Testament. 
And, and even and, and so even then the priests, you know, once a year would go into the holiest. It says here that we, we have brethren boldness to enter into the holiest. The priest would go into the holiest, or what was commonly called the holy of holies. You know, the, if you, ta- you if you're looking at the tabernacle or the temple, it was designed the same way. You know, there were three parts. There was the outer court where it was the brazen altar where they'd offer the animal sacrifices. Then there was the the laver and and the uh, and in front of the and then there was the holy place or the the laver where they walk, priests washed. And then behind the first curtain was called the holy place. And in that was where the candlestick was, and the and the table of showbread, and and the altar of incense was in there, and where they, the priests, the priests plural, would offer incense, and the the table of showbread was what they ate from uh, of that, and, and and you know all these things has typology. But then there was this great veil, and behind that great veil was the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat. And through that veil, which was called the holiest of all, that room was called the holiest of all, the third room, uh, uh, through that veil, the high priest would go once a year. Only the high priest. Only one man in the whole nation could ever go in there. And that was the high priest. Once a year. To atone for the sins of the nation and himself. But not without blood. He had to take blood in there and put it on the horns of the mercy seat. To atone for their sins. But only, he could only go in there once a year. But every year he had to do it again. You see, that in that holy place, or the holiest of all, was the place where the, the glory of God dwell. You know, the Bible talks about that Shekinah glory that came down and filled the tabern- covered the tabernacle. And then when Solomon built his temple, and he pr- had that dedication to prayer, and then the glory of God filled the, that place. And, and that, we're talking about the holiest place. Where only the high priest could go once a year. That was the place of God's presence. And, but they had to do that year after year after year. In chapter 9, verse 7, it says, But into the second went the high priest once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself, and for the heirs of the people. So this was the way it was done before. But we have new access. We have new access. If you notice in verse 20, he says, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. The word new here means different. It means fresh, not old, or not getting old. In other words, we're not talking about something that's aging. You know, every sacrifice and offering that the high priest offered before decayed. It died. It never resurrected. It decayed and was no more. It corrupted. It was subject. See, all every blood and every sacrifice and offering of blood before was tainted by sin, was corrupted by sin, therefore subject to death and decay. But this sacrifice was sinless. And it's still new. It's still new. It's still fresh. You see, this blood was not tainted by sin. It was pure. It was undefiled. It is incorruptible. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter. But the incorruptible blood. 
It is eternal. And so we have this new, this, this new access, and it's a living, he said it's a new and living way. That word living means it has vital power in itself and exerting the same upon the soul. So it exerts that influence or that power upon us who receive it as our Lord, him, him as our Lord and Savior. And it goes on and it says this, this phrase describing the characteristic of divine grace in the granting of pardon of sin and fellowship with God which likens it to the way leading to the heavenly sanctuary. So, so through this living way, we, we are led to the heavenly sanctuary. Not an earthly one, not the tabernacle in Jerusalem. You know, the Jews want to rebuild their tabernacle. They want to rebuild, the, they want to rebuild their temple. But that's not the way anymore. No, the way is to a heavenly. We have, we have access to the heavenly tabernacle. Not an earthly one. You see, again, under the law, when the sacrifices of blood was shed, it died, corrupted, and decayed. And, but this blood, uh, you know, and of course that blood was fresh when it was offered on the mercy seat, but then it would corrupt and decay. But this sacrifice of blood is living. It's incorruptible. It's not susceptible to decay. That means it is always fresh and living. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. And verse 18, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18, Peter, the apostle, says this, For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So it wasn't something that corruptible that, that redeems us. It's something that's incorruptible. It's not susceptible to decay. And, and here's the amazing part to me. You know, the, the sacrifice of himself, that is Jesus Christ, you know, of his own blood. And, and so the sacrifice himself took his own blood into the holiest place in heaven and offered his blood on the mercy seat there to atone for our sin. Now, now think about that. The sacrifice himself took his own blood. Well, wait a minute, preacher. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And that's right. And the blood, it defileth. That's also true. Man's blood. But he didn't have blood of man. Acts 20 says we're purchased with the blood of God. Love God. You see, Jesus' body died. His body of flesh, of humanity, died. But doesn't the Bible tell us in Acts that he saw no corruption? But he was given another body, a glorified body. And with that glorified body, he took that blood that he had shed and himself took it into heaven, into the holy place, to obtain eternal redemption for us. Now, that's one of a kind. There's been no sacrifice that has ever shed its blood before and then took its own blood and offered it. We, we couldn't do that. I mean, if I spill your blood, you're dead. 
You're dead. You will die. But Jesus, you see, that's why it says in verse 20, by a new and living way, which is consecrated for us through the veil. So he went, you know, picture here again, so, so the high priest, only the high priest can go into that holy of holies through that veil once a year. So that veil, remember, what happened to the veil when Jesus said it was finished? It rent from top to bottom. You see, in his flesh, he went through that veil with his blood. Not the one, what not, but not the temple on earth, but the tabernacle in heaven. So, so Jesus Christ Himself, our Passover for us, First Corinthians five tells us died in the flesh, was quickened by the Spirit, that is, he received a spiritual body, then took his own blood that came from his fleshly body, and took his own blood as our high priest. Only the high priest can go into that holiest place, but as our high priest, he went into the holiest place to obtain eternal redemption for us. You know, that's why it says in Luke, 2439, Jesus said to the disciples, Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit, and the word spirit there means really ghost, because they thought he was a ghost. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as you see me have. In other words, what I'm saying to you is, he didn't have blood. That glorified body didn't have blood. Do you realize he still has open wounds in his hands? He told Thomas, reach hither thy finger, reach hither thy hands into my side, and see. Be not faithless, believe me. You know, if, he had, if, if, a, if a fleshly body today had an open wound, what would it be doing? Bleeding. But he still has open wounds that are visible, that are not bleeding. Because that spiritual body has no blood. 1 Corinthians 15 says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You see, he had offered his blood on the mercy seat in heaven. And it's still there. Notice, go to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll get to go over this more later. But in Hebrews 12, verse 22 to 24, the Bible says, But ye are coming to Mount Zion under the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So we're talking about things in heaven. And an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, to the God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood that speaketh better things than that of Abel. You see, when Jesus... When Jesus died, and I don't, I don't know, you know, again, this is all, this is, this is miraculous. These are, we're talking about miraculous things. You know, people will say, well, I don't know how he could, he could, you know, that blood was shed and poured out on the ground. And, and you know, how could, how could he take that blood then and offer it on the mercy seat in heaven? I don't know. 
How can virgin conceive? If you answer me that question, I'll answer you the other one. <laughs> or how can a day be extended? But see, but sometime, sometime after he died on the cross and was laid in that tomb, he took his blood. He, he came out of that tomb and took his blood and offered it on the mercy seat. Now, now we do have a little bit of a glimpse of when may that may have been. Look at John chapter 20 for just a minute. John chapter 20. And it's believed that this is the time that Jesus ascended to heaven to, to offer his blood on the altar of, of uh, the mercy seat in heaven. In John chapter 20... In uh, verse 11, it says, Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. Two see two angels in white sitting at the one, head, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus was laid. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto him, them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And she, when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself, and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. And Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father and to my God and to your God. And so it's believed that, many commentators believe that between the time that Jesus spoke to Mary and saw Mary here at the sepulcher and when he met with the disciples later that night, he ascended back to the Father with his blood. But we see here, what we have here is a new and living way. We have new access. Not the sacrifice, think of it, the sacrifice himself took his own blood and offered it on the mercy seat in heaven to obtain eternal redemption for us. The God-man. The God-man. Secondly, we have a new attitude. We can approach God with a new attitude. Notice verse 19, and then also in verse 22. Having therefore, brethren, boldness. Boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. You see, no Old Testament saint would even think about trying to enter into the holiest place. You remember Uzziah, who was a good and godly king. He, he tried to intrude into the priest's office. And, 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 he, and so he, and, you know, he picked up some, some um, uh, incense and was going to offer it, which the priest, only the priests were supposed to do. And, and the priests, they stood against him and were going to confront him about it. And, and he, he was going to try and force his way in. And, and, and while they're standing there looking at him, the leprosy starts growing up. God is judging him for his error. See, no Israelite in his right mind would ever consider going into the holiest. But now what's it tell us? 
boldly. We can boldly enter in. Right into the presence of God. The Father. Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with a pure water. You know, under the, again, under the Old Testament law, a sacrifice was brought to the priest. Who would inspect it? Inspect it for errors. Because it was to be a clean, pure sacrifice. And then it was offered. But again, it was only a temporal sacrifice. And it, was, it was only temporary. It could never take away sin permanently, nor cleanse the conscience. For another sacrifice was required next year. Reminding again that we're the constant reminder that those sacrifices were not good enough to make the comers thereunto perfect. But as we saw last week in verse 14, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And we see here in verse 22, we says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. See, those Old Testament sacrifices couldn't clear your conscience because you had to bring another sacrifice next year. But we don't have to do it anymore. Because my sacrifice for sin, the Lord Jesus Christ, when He offered, He paid the penalty for sin, for all sin, for all eternity. He's taken away the penalty of sin. He's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. So far he's removed our transgressions from us, the psalmist said. So so they did not have confidence. They did not have confidence because they did not have an incorruptible sacrifice. But in Acts chapter 13, verse 36 and 37, it says, For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep was laid unto fathers and saw corruption. You know, when, when, if you die, if, if, if you would die, they're going to put you in a grave. Your body's going to corrupt. And that's what it said to David. But, verse 37, He whom God raised again saw no corruption. Jesus didn't corrupt. 1 Peter 1 23 says, being born again, not a corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. And I submit to you that Jesus is the word of God. We are born of uncorruptible, incorruptible things. And that incorruptible thing, it lives and abideth forever. It's living. It's fresh. It's new. It never gets old because he's eternal. He's eternal. What did John say in John chapter 8, verse 35? And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. The son abideth ever. Near the Old Testament priests, they, had, they didn't, couldn't continue forever, but this we have a continual priesthood. He abides forever. See, therefore, we can have full assurance in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sin, because he was the perfect and accepted sacrifice for sin for all eternity. All time and eternity. 
Isaiah 53 says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. In other words, the burden and the transgression of sin is removed. Verses 10 and 11, Isaiah 53. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his days. He shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. See, God was never satisfied with the blood of bulls and goats. But when Jesus Christ shed his own blood and then by himself offered it on the mercy seat in heaven, God was satisfied. I don't need, God's saying to us, I don't need any other sacrifice for sin. This one is sufficient for all your sin, for the sins of the whole world. See, therefore, we can have the most certain confidence in our sacrifice for sin. And his acceptance as payment for our sin. Therefore, he accepts us. We can be assured of our acceptance because our sin is paid for. Again, John 8, Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you what? Free. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. John 8, 36. See, we then can come boldly to the Father with a clear conscience, having assurance in our payment for sin. Because we know it satisfied the Father on our behalf. And we can come with a Pure or clear conscience, not an evil one. You again in chapter 9, verse 14, a couple weeks ago, we read where it says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot, purge? And that word purge means to cleanse. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, what, what was not possible through the animal sacrifices, because you had a reminder every year of your sins again, so you could never be purged. But your conscience was never purged from your sin. Because it was a constant reminder. But now, conscience shouldn't be purged or cleansed. Because it is paid for. It has been paid. There is no more debt owed. It's like, you know, a debt. A debt is a burden to carry. You know, in the Old Testament times, you know, it's, it's sort of like just you know, if you have a, if you, you borrowed money for something, uh, that, that debt is a burden you carry until it's paid off. And really, under the Old Testament economy, they were carrying a, the debt of sin year after year after year. They were reminded that they had a debt of sin that wasn't satisfied until Jesus Christ came and satisfied the debt. And now there's no more burden because the debt is satisfied. See, sin is a burden. It's a debt that one's carried. But if you have not trusted or placed your confidence in the sacrifice of Christ for your sin, you're still carrying that burden of sin. 
or that debt of sin. But you see, we can have a clear conscience. So we, we come with a new attitude. We can have boldness. God wants us. God delights when we come to Him. Even with your confession, you might feel guilty because you sin. God delights and here you come and confess your sin. After all, it's already been paid for. The debt's already satisfied. You're still His child, just like you parents know, understand this. You know, when your child disobeys, they have a guilty conscience. And many times what they'll do is continue to disobey or do something else to, to try and irritate you because the relationship, the fellowship's not right between you and the child. Because they know they're guilty. And there's a burden there. Until they, it is made right. Until there's some consequences. And then the conscience is clear. That's what a good biblical spanking does. It cleanses the conscience of a child. And then that fellowship is restored. But you know what? A father delights to have that child come and make things right. He wants that child. He desires that child. A father or a mother desires that child to, to make things right, to clear their conscience. Yet God wants us to come to Him, even when we have sin. I mean, it's already been paid for. It's just hindering our fellowship. It's just hindering our fellowship. And so we can have this clean conscience before a holy, righteous God, in the presence of a holy and righteous God. And then thirdly, let us consider our profession. Verses 23 to 25. I want to notice several things here. And this, the idea here is we have to choose to continue in our profession of Christ. And this is a challenge that he's giving to these Hebrews is, look, you need to continue in your profession of Christ, but two ways. Number one, by considering one another. If you notice in verse 23, let us hold fast. And the idea here is of you've got to choose to do this. You've got to give some diligence here. Hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promise. You know, we can, we can trust in the promises of God. They will not change. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. So, so we're to choose by considering one another. The word consider means to consider attentively, to fix one's eyes or mind upon. The idea is to care one for another, to encourage one another. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 25 and 26, it says that there be should no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member beyond, all the members rejoice with it. You know, when I hear that somebody's sick, it affects me. You know, I'll pray differently for that sick person than I do normally. Uh, and, and so, and that's, the, that's what he's doing here, considering one another. And of course, you know, we ought to rejoice with one another and encourage one another. And this is what it means to consider, we're to fix our eyes upon and consider one another. You know, when Andrew was shown by the, apost- the John the Baptist 
the, the, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Do you know what he did? He went first and findeth his own brother Peter. Do you know why? Because he was considering Peter. He was considering his brother. He went first and finded his own brother Peter and brought him to Jesus. See, that's, that's an example of considering one another. Philip, when he was told about him, he went and found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the Messiah, which is the Christ. Joseph, or, or Jesus, the son of Joseph of Nazareth. And of course, that's when Nathaniel said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And he said, come and see, you know. What were they doing? They were considering one another. They were encouraging one. Aquila and Priscilla considered Apollos. Apollos was a great uh, oratory preacher. He could, he could quote much. Uh, you know, it, it, the Bible tells us that he, that he uh, uh, spoke fervently. And, but the idea was he could quote much of the Old Testament scriptures and show from them the Messiah that was to come. Only he didn't understand that he had come. He knew about John the Baptist, but he didn't know the whole story yet. And so Aquila and Priscilla took him aside. They considered him. They took him aside and explained to him more fully the gospel. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, the Bible says of the Lord, how God anointed Jesus in Nazareth. This is Peter actually preaching to Cornelius. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy Ghost with power, who went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. You know, the best good we can do for anyone, anyone, is to tell them the good news. That Jesus came to save them from their sin. But we need to consider one another. To encourage one another in our walk with the Lord. To challenge one another. You know, as we were reading the uh, scripture memory passage this morning in Second Second Thessalonians chapter two, this this struck me. In verse fifteen through seventeen, Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica said, "Therefore, brethren, stand fast, hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle." Now the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us, hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. You know, they were facing some difficult times, even as we're facing unchanging times. But we need to encourage one another to hold fast to the traditions. In other words, the teachings passed down. Your churches are changing. We all know that. With the contemporary movement, what are they doing? They're rejecting the teachings that have been passed down for centuries. You, you, read, you read some of the church history books, particularly I'm thinking of the one of the, about the Waldensians that Brother Ted Alexander wrote about the Waldensians. And, and he talks about their, their, their way they conducted marriage and, and what they thought about dancing and, and drinking. That's stuff that independent Baptists have taught for years. And we're talking about a thousand years ago. They taught the same things. You know what we're saying? They had Bible standards. They had Bible standards. Which today is an exception and not the rule in churches. So, we're to consider one another. Secondly, we 
consider our profession by assembling together. Verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much more as to see the day approaching. You know, this is the most effective way we can provoke or consider one another and provoke unto love and good works. That word provoke there means to stir up. You know, you know, we used to use that word in Pennsylvania, well, he provoked me, you know, he made me angry. Well, it really did stir you up. You know, sometimes, sometimes it might be beneficial if you make somebody angry. Jesus made a lot of people angry. He was trying to get them to see the truth. Their response was, there wasn't anything wrong with what he said or did. What was wrong was the response or the reaction he got. One of anger many times. But, you know, we don't want to try and make people angry. But, but we are to provoke unto love and good works and not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, but exhorting one another. That word exhort means to admonish, which means to warn. It means to entreat. That means to beg, to encourage. It also means to comfort. You know, all these things can take place in the assembly when we get together and we rub shoulders one with another and, and we challenge one another and we encourage one another and, 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 you know, by kind words and deeds and words of warning even. You know, when you flip Ephesians chapter 4, you know, Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus and, and basically said this is the purpose of the church. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness whereby we lie and wait, they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So the picture here is, you know, we, we have pastors and teachers to perfect us or to mature us so that we'll, we'll grow up, we'll mature in Christ, and, you know, every, we won't have blind spots. We won't have weaknesses that the world can attack us like, you know, oh, we heard this morning in the Sunday school class, Jehoshaphat had a blind spot. He was blinded by the wiles of Ahab. He was deceived. Whether knowingly or ignorantly, it didn't change the outcome. You see, the world is out, and Abraham, Ahab was out to destroy Jehoshaphat. The world's out to destroy you. But God's purpose in the church is to build you up so you'll be a strong man or woman, young man, young lady of God that won't be deceived by the tricks of the world, the deception of the world, and drawn away after its own lusts. And destroyed. You know, Proverbs chapter 4, you know, brings out that very click, clearly that that's what the world, and you know, and that's what Ahab was trying to do with, with uh, Jehoshaphat. Uh, Proverbs 4 verse 16 says, They sleep not, this is the evil, they sleep not, 
except they have done mischief, and their sleep is taken away unless they cause some to fall. Why would the Pharisees agree with Judas to betray Jesus? Did they not know that was an evil deed? Of course they knew it was an evil deed. But you know what they could say? We got one of his own to fall. We got one of his own to fall. You know what they're trying to do? Discredit. They didn't care about Judas. They wanted to discredit the ministry and life of Jesus Christ. The world wants you to fall, to try and discredit the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they want to do. Now, you may fall, but you know what the best thing you can do when you fall is confess it. And somehow, I don't understand this, somehow God, you know, when, when, when sin is confessed and made right, the, the world all of a sudden loses their, loses their, it seems like they lose their opportunity to discredit the Lord. Yeah, we had a, when we were in Maine, we had a situation there that was known in the community concerning the preceding pastor and a lady in the church, or some ladies in the church. And it was talked about. Undercurrent, you know, always there was a suspicion, not only in the church, but in the community. But after that was confessed openly in the church, you know what, all that undertalk in the church and in the community went away. It was amazing. I was just kind of like, wow. You know, we had a, you know, about six months after we had this lady come forward and confess this, this sin, it was, it was adultery, and I had a visiting missionary who had been, who was from, actually from Stetson, Maine, originally, which was like an hour and a half drive from up, and he knew everything that kind of went on. You know, everybody knew this guy. He was, he was known all the way, all over the country. But anyway, you're not in a good way. But anyway, he said, uh, he said, so you ever hear about, so-and-so. I said, you know, it's kind of funny you asked that. I said, you know, he has, they don't talk about him anymore here. You see, before it was always this, this talk about this, this gossip. You know, it was like gossip. They, there was no certainty of it, but they were pretty sure that he was guilty of adultery. But once it was dealt with, nobody talked about it anymore. Once it was confessed and open, nobody talked about it. Why? Because it was handled scripturally. And the church and the lady, the man was never was, never man never made things right, but the lady was cleansed and forgiven by the church. And so we no longer had this undercurrent, you know, oh, here she comes, kind of thing. See, that's what church is for. Titus 1.3 says that he's manifested his word through preaching. In uh, 2 Timothy 1.2, we're to to teach teach men that they may teach others also. So so we, uh, we are to consider our profession 
by considering one another and assembling together. Assembling together. But we have. Yeah, we have. We can have full assurance of faith. We need to consider what we have in Jesus Christ. And we can come boldly. You know, this, the, the, this, really this message I think kind of goes on, but I don't have time to get into that this morning because I don't think you want me to go to midnight like Paul did in Acts chapter 17. But, but anyway, you know, the, he does give us a warning in the next part of the passage. Look, if we forsake this, if we forsake the sacrifice that's been made for us, there is no other. There is no other. The only other alternative is to, to receive the wrath of God. But we can have full assurance. We can come boldly under the throne of grace because our sacrifice himself took his own blood and offered it inside the veil in the holiest of all for us. Meaning that we too now can approach God into the holiest place, to the throne of God itself. Because he liveth to make intercession for us. Do you have that assurance? Do you have that confidence? Christ Jesus paid the sin debt that you might be set free and have that confidence and assurance.